It's Monday, November 21st, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, could the triple-demic be tamped down slightly by the viruses interfering with and preventing each other from spiking in the same place at the same time? Plus, public libraries in the U.S. and Canada have been launching their own streaming platforms featuring local musicians. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. In 2020, flu season passed largely without incident because so many people were still masking and social distancing. Many offices and places of recreation remained closed. Respiratory viruses, it was thought, didn't have much chance to circulate. Now, last year, in 2021, as we braced ourselves for a gnarly strain of flu awakened after a year of rest, it didn't materialize nearly as badly as expected. Perhaps because the winter of 2021 saw another surge of COVID and in lockstep, another wave of lockdowns in some nations and in others, people returning to their masks and staying home more. This fall, the headlines have been blasting out warnings of a triple-demic. Not only will COVID and the flu likely surge, but cases of respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV, have been on the rise. Quoting CNBC, About 171 out of every 100,000 infants younger than six months were hospitalized with RSV for the week ending November 12th, according to the CDC's surveillance system that tracks 12 states. That is more than double the RSV hospitalization rate for newborns last year and more than seven times the rate in 2018, the last complete season before the COVID-19 pandemic, end quote. Why the huge surge? One reason, according to Dr. Jose Romero, director of the CDC's National Center for Immunization and Respiratory Diseases, is that public health precautions for COVID prevented a lot of small children from catching the virus before, and therefore also prevented them from developing immunity. RSV is similar to a cold for most people, and it's something that most kids catch before they're two years old. Adults can catch it as well, but it is particularly dangerous for infants under six months old or some older children with weaker immune systems. And it tends to be worse the first time someone catches it. And it can lead to a number of more serious conditions like bronchiolitis and pneumonia. And it's clear from the CDC's tracking data and the many hospitals across the U.S. that are on the verge of running out of beds that this is a very serious outbreak. And the flu and COVID are not helping. However, a growing body of research would indicate that flu and COVID perhaps aren't compounding with RSV as much as headlines about a triple-demic would have you believe. Some epidemiologists say that some respiratory viruses interfere with each other. That is, they sort of prevent the other one from developing and spreading. And so, while a hospital may strain under the waves of different viruses, the three of them shouldn't be peaking at the same time within the same community. And the hope is that means hospitals won't become completely overwhelmed in the same way that they were at the start of the pandemic. But that doesn't take into account the many logistical and personnel stresses that hospitals are currently under. Many hospitals are short-staffed compared to the start of the pandemic, largely due to staff becoming burnt out from the pandemic. So hospitals could still feel just as intense or nearly as intense of a strain. But some epidemiologists hope it won't be because of an apocalyptic triple-demic. 
And I think trying to predict exactly how all of it will play out is treading in dangerous waters, and I don't want to lure anyone into a false sense of security in a year when there really are three highly contagious respiratory viruses circulating, but I do think that the science behind these epidemiological studies about interference are interesting. So I want to dig in here a little more, quoting very heavily from a recent piece on the American Association for the Advancement of Science's website so that I don't get anything wrong. But to begin with my layman's interpretation, if you were recently sick with one type of respiratory virus, it seems like you can sometimes have a temporary immunity to other similar viruses, not just that same one that you had. And if one of those, say COVID, is currently circulating in a community, others, like say the flu, won't widely circulate at the same time. And examples of this abound from during the pandemic. Like I said at the top, the flu didn't spread much at all in 2020. Now, was that because SARS-CoV-2 interfered with it and prevented the flu from circulating? Or was it because many of us were staying home and masking when we went out? It can be tough to draw conclusions from examples like that. Those confounding variables make it difficult. Another example would be if RSV swept an elementary school and hardly any of those kids got the flu. Is that an example of interference? Or is it because all the kids who got RSV stayed home and that prevented them from catching any instances of the flu that might have been trying to spread? A number of studies that account for such variables have been conducted over the last decade that give credence to the interference hypothesis, but let's first dig in more to what exactly that means. Quoting science, When a respiratory virus sweeps through a community, interferons, chemical messengers that infected people produce, can broadly raise the body's defenses and temporarily erect a population-wide immune barrier against subsequent viruses that target the respiratory system. Basically, every virus triggers the interferon response to some extent, and every virus is susceptible to it, says immunologist Ellen Foxman at Yale University, who has been exploring interference between SARS-CoV-2 and other viruses in a laboratory model of the human airway. Rhinoviruses, which cause common colds, can trip up influenza A, the most prevalent flu virus. RSV can bump rhinoviruses and human metanomaviruses. Influenza A can thwart its distant cousin, influenza B. Still, interference isn't a sure thing when multiple viruses are circulating. A household survey of 2,117 people in Nicaragua, for example, found both flu and COVID-19 cases peaked at the same time in February, suggesting limited viral interference, the researchers concluded in a preprint. I think of interference as a small push, says Aubrey Gordon, the University of Michigan Ann Arbor researcher who led the study with colleagues from Nicaragua's Ministry of Health. It depends on population immunity and when that virus last circulated and flu and COVID vaccination rates, end quote. Building on the discovery of interferons by virologists in 1957, in the 60s and 70s, Soviet virologist Marina Voroshlova investigated why live, weakened versions of poliovirus in vaccines sometimes failed to grow in the guts of people who received them, therefore failing to trigger the necessary immune response. Quoting again, she found that harmless enteroviruses in the intestinal tract appeared to interfere with the polioviruses. Vorshilova then ran large field trials of vaccines composed of attenuated enteroviruses. They worked against those gut pathogens and also, surprisingly, warded off multiple respiratory viruses. 
Her team pegged the protection against the respiratory viruses to increased levels of interferons, end quote. For decades, not much follow-up research was conducted, even though patterns continued to be noted. Some of those patterns were finally mapped into a large, comprehensive, longitudinal study conducted at the National Health Service in Glasgow. Taking PCR tests of 36,000 individuals over nine years, testing for 11 different viral families, the study was able to show clear opposition in the peaks of rhinovirus and influenza A. That is, they were never peaking at the same time. An unrelated study from 2016 to 2019 took place at the Yale New Haven Hospital System and showed similar results. And that report from Foxman, the immunologist quoted earlier, helped explain the role of those interferons, quoting again, Like normal airways, the organoids that her team makes from bronchial epithelial cells mount immune responses, including secreting interferons. Infecting organoids with rhinovirus nearly halted the growth of influenza A viruses added later, and the rhinovirus infections led to the expression of a flood of interferon-related genes, the study showed. And when her team treated the organoids with drugs that blocked their cells from mounting an interferon response, the influenza viruses thrived, end quote. These lab studies and longitudinal surveys are reassuring, but it's still tough to tell the practical applications. Not every virus prevents every other one across the board in the same way. And how does SARS-CoV-2 factor into all of this? To what extent are its interactions with other viruses caused by behavior and public health measures versus interferons? Virologist Pablo Mercia, who co-authored the study from Glasgow, told Science that it'll be interesting to watch this year, the first real year that many people are foregoing many of the social distancing and masking precautions that they kept up in previous winters. And with a spike in RSV in addition to COVID and the flu, it's unfortunately a very good opportunity to learn more about how the viruses interact with one another. Mercia's hope is that he and his colleagues are right about interference, not just for their egos, but so that more people remain safe and healthy. In news that feels much closer to the internet of my dreams, a number of public libraries across North America have started their own local music streaming services. Preston Austin and Kelly Heiser built a software platform in 2014 called Music Cats and used it to launch the Yahara Music Library, an online library housed within the Madison Public Library system that allows anyone to stream music by a curated selection of artists local to Madison, Wisconsin. Austin and Heiser have since made MusicCat's open-source software available to public libraries across North America, with over a dozen of them launching their own digital music libraries since then. In addition to the software, Austin also provides a process model for the libraries to follow, mostly guidelines that they can use to make it easy or innovate on if they want to. But the one requirement is that any artists accepted into the library receive an honorarium to license their work usually in the ballpark of $250 for a five-year license, although some libraries offer a bit more. It's not a ton, but as Vice notes in a recent profile of the project, it's, quote, a far cry from the fractions of a penny per stream paid to independent artists by platforms like Spotify, end quote. And Austin makes clear to Vice and others, Musicat is not a Spotify alternative. 
You won't find top 40 artists in these libraries' collections, and the websites themselves are very pared down, not offering the many features of a major app like Spotify or Pandora. In general, libraries accept submissions from artists who are ideally local to the area or at least regularly perform there. Some libraries, like the New Orleans Public Library and the Fort Worth Public Library, currently have albums from about 30 to 50 different artists. But longer-running digital libraries, like the Edmonton Public Library in Alberta, Canada, have hundreds. Edmonton's site says they're committed to adding 100 new artists each year. And they've also used this project as a springboard for other music-oriented programming, like events, a tour poster collection, and even a limited run of vinyl record pressings. Anyone can access the websites and stream the music, but you do need a library card for each particular library in order to download the music. Joshua Smith, who works at the New Orleans Public Library and helped launch their Crescent City Sounds website, told Vice, quote, The goal of this was to make every round that we add albums to it be as reflective of the local music scene as possible. Personally, I was looking for things that are less what you think of when you think of New Orleans music, because people think of us in a certain way. There's an incredible diversity to the music scene here, and, you know, just the diversity of the city, so we're trying to make everything as reflective of that as we could this round. End quote. You can check on the Musicat website, link in the show notes, to see if your local library has a streaming music site. But I do like what Smith said there about part of the point of these sites being to showcase local artists to people from out of their towns. So if you're curious what the local music scene is really like in New Orleans, Salt Lake City, Chapel Hill, Davenport, or more, scroll that same list and start listening. I just think it's really awesome to see libraries leaning into streaming music, and not necessarily in the way where, like, your library card can get you access to mainstream streaming music, but rather through the promotion of local artists. It's really cool. And while we're on the note of free services from public libraries, here are two that I always feel like not enough people are aware of. Most local and university libraries in the U.S. give you free access to Canopy, a movie streaming service featuring mostly critically acclaimed movies, foreign films, and documentaries. A peek at some of the offerings they're currently highlighting include Moonlight, 8th Grade, Lady Bird, The Central Park Five, Parasite, and even kids' shows like Franklin, Muzzy, and Sesame Street. And another public library freebie, eBooks. Most public libraries in the U.S. allow you to rent ebooks and audiobooks through Libby or its owner, Overdrive. Just check your library's website, set up the app, and boom, no more paying for audiobooks. Libraries have so much more than a lot of people realize. It is always worth checking what you can get for free there before paying somewhere else. All right, well, that is going to be it for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow.